0: I want us to read that verse of Scripture. I hope by the end of the services next weekend on Easter Sunday, you've made this like one of the kid things you did growing up, a memory verse, and you've committed it to your heart. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 20 and 21, it is the gospel in a nutshell. Um, And the end of verse 20, it says, We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, He made Him... To be sin who knew no sin. That's a reference to Jesus. He made Jesus to be sin who knew no sin so that in Him, in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God. My objective this morning is to help us understand our own helplessness in defeating sin in our own human efforts. Simply put, we cannot save ourselves. Last week, to help us understand the power of the gospel, we spent a lot of time trying to understand the true power that sin has in our life. Because if you can minimize the bad news of sin, then you minimize the good news of the power of the gospel that helps break the pattern of sin in our life. But in order to talk about sin, we talked about misconceptions people have about sin. And here's the big one. People think Jesus died for our sins instead of dying for sin. Because if Jesus just died for our sins, then we fall into the trap of thinking that being a Christian is only cleaning up my behavior. That you know what if I can minimize my sin or minimize those acts of disobedience or minimize my immoral actions that 's what being a christian is it 's about cleaning up the behavior on the outside. The problem with that understanding is the sins are the fruit of a root in us called sin. The sin isn't, the sins in our life stem from a deeper problem in the heart of humanity. And Jesus didn't die to deal with the surface issue of our little sins. He died to cut down sin in the root of the human heart. So the issue is people say, you know, well, I'm really not that bad. You know, you may have cleaned up your life morally, but the issue is not your morality. The issue is, have you given your diseased heart to Jesus Christ so He can deal with the root of sin in the heart of human nature? And other people say, well, I really don't need the gospel because I'm not as bad as so-and-so. Never hurt anybody, never killed anybody, never done any of those bad things. So we equate the need for salvation with being a really bad person. We never realize, many of us, that sin is an issue that is in all of us since Adam and Eve. It is in the very core of our nature. And the message of the gospel that we've read in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 is that God is saying, I'm willing to make this unfair exchange with you. First of all, you have to understand that your heart is rotten to the core. Human nature is sinful at its very center. And what I came to die for was not just your petty sins. I came to die to deal with the issue at the root. I am willing, he said, to let him who never sinned, Become sin so that you might become the righteousness of God. That's God's way of saying, you know what? For your sake, I'm willing to make an unfair trade. You give me your sin-sick heart. You give me all of that stuff, that root of sin in your heart. You give it to me. Surrender to me. Let me deal with it. And in turn, I will give you my righteousness. Let him who never sinned become your sin and then in turn I will give you my righteousness and you will become a son and daughter who is the righteousness of God. That's an unfair trade. We called it the great exchange last week that God is willing to make. So for the last seven days we may have been asking the question, okay, I get it. I'm sinful to the core. But what do I do about it? How do I deal with that? How do I make that great exchange, pastor? Well, before we... Go through the details of that. We first need to understand uh, exactly what the gospel means when it tells us that we cannot save ourselves. How is it that we are helpless in the in the in the process of coming to Christ or finding right standing before God? So, how do we do that? The short answer is, you don't. You don't help yourself because you can't. That's probably the greatest offense of the gospel to human pride. The gospel disregards human effort and salvation. You cannot save yourself. You can't do anything to increase your right standing before God. The cure for our sinful nature, the root of evil on the inside of us, is completely outside of any of our best efforts. This is really difficult for Americans to get. That's why the gospel is offensive to Americans. Because if you think about what we love in our heroes, they all seem to be self-made men and women who through sheer determination overcame obstacles and enemies to ultimately lift themselves to greatness that many of our heroes have attained. We love stories about rags to riches. And we love rooting for the underdogs because there's something down deep inside of us that celebrates hard work and individual effort that allows people to come to a place of greatness. Maybe that's why the gospel is so offensive to our human nature. It tells us that there is absolutely nothing that we can do to help ourselves in our standing before God. We cannot earn right standing before God. We cannot work our way to salvation. and individual effort won't get us to heaven. The gospel asks us to be a passive element in our own redemption. Go back to the verse we started with. But let's look specifically at chapter 5 verse 21. For our sake He made Him to be sin who knew no sin that in Him we might become the righteousness of God. The Apostle Paul is deliberate with his words. Our righteousness does not come through human wisdom. Our righteousness or our right standing before God does not come by man-made human effort. Righteousness, according to Paul, is only granted one way, in Him. For our sake, He made Jesus to be sin, the only one who knew no sin, so that in Him, in Jesus, we might become the righteousness of God. When you understand that, you begin to see how passive we are in our own eternity. How unable we are to change by our own human effort. We have the opportunity to become righteous, but only through Jesus. Before we explore why Jesus was the only sufficient Savior, we have to understand why we cannot save ourselves. In the beginning, when Adam and Eve first sinned, that sin, I mean God and man walked together every day in the afternoon, the Bible says. But when Adam and Eve disobeyed in sin, that sin separated man from God. So in order to bridge the gap, In order to cover man's sin, God instituted a sacrificial system. And that's where in the Old Testament you have the Old Testament temple and the altars and all of these stories about people bringing lambs and bulls and goats. And they were being sacrificed to cover up man's sin. And they did that all throughout the Old Testament. But here's what Israel became really good at. They became really good at pretending and performing. When they pretended they were minimizing their sin and pretending their rebellion against God wasn't as bad as it really was. They used the same excuses that we use today. You know what? I'm really not that bad. Or compared to those pagan nations over there, our sin isn't all that bad. And if you want to you take the power out of the gospel, undermine the power sin has in our life. You undermine the power of the gospel. Who needs the gospel if sin is not an issue? And so Israel spent a lot of time in the Old Testament pretending their sin wasn't all that bad. And then all of a sudden when Israel would get their back against the wall when one of the foreign nations or their enemies would begin to attack them and they were in trouble, all of a sudden they needed to cry out to God. They needed a deliverer. They needed a helper. And so now they're setting up altars and they're bringing sacrifices and they're crying out to God. Why? Because they want to manipulate God. They want God all of a sudden to get in their business. They spent part of their time pretending their sin wasn't really that bad and then they spend the rest of their time trying to perform religious duties in order to get... God in their business because they really need Him to break them out of this dilemma that they're in. So they went from pretending to performing. In one of the seasons of Israel's performance, religious performance, they're going through all of the motions of religion with the wrong motives because they're trying to manipulate God. Isaiah calls them out. He says in Isaiah 1.10 Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, you people of Gomorrah. Now the reason that's important is because He's not talking to Sodom and Gomorrah. He's talking to Israel. But we know that Sodom and Gomorrah was probably one of the most wicked cities in, the, in, in, in human history. And God judged the city. And because of, of of what Israel is doing, they're going through all the religious motions, but their hearts are far from God. And he, he equates them in the middle of their religious service to the same level as Sodom and Gomorrah. When He calls them out, I mean, that's a pretty severe rebuke. And then He goes on In verse number 11 through 14, saying, The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me, says the Lord? I have more than enough burnt offerings, rams, the fat of fattened animals. I have no pleasure in the blood of bulls and lambs and goats. When you come to appear before me, who has asked this of you? uh, This trampling of my courts. Stop bringing meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me. Your new moons and Sabbaths and convocations. I cannot bear your worthless assemblies. I hate with I hate your new moon feast and your appointed festivals with all of my being. They have become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. It's obvious God is a little frustrated with Israel. They are all they're doing everything right bringing the sacrifices, fulfilling all of the requirements, but their heart is not doing it as an act of worship to God. Their motivation is to gain control over God. They're trying to manipulate Him. So in one sense, they're pretending. Sin is not all that bad. In the other sense, they're performing to try to get the upper hand on God. And He challenges them that their best attempts to fulfill His law are not enough. He says, do I delight in your sacrifice? And he asked them a pointed question. Who asked you to trample on my court or give these sacrifices? And the irony in this whole deal, he is. He's the one that set up the sacrificial system to cover sin. And yet they're doing what he asked. But the key is, they're doing it for the wrong motives. We were talking about this. Pastor Mike uh, actually is the one that shared this with me. He said, you know, Pastor, maybe, maybe that the sacrificial system wasn't set up in the Old Testament so that man could have a way to have this sin covered. Maybe God instituted the sacrificial system of the Old Testament just to show us how futile our efforts are in gaining right standing with God. The performing aspect of this was trying to get, manipulate and get control over God. While we don't do the bulls and goats thing anymore, we tend to earn our righteousness by behavior. Some of us think that coming to Jesus, the gospel, being a Christian, is just behavioral modification. It'll help you live a better moral life. If we behave well, if we participate often enough, if we strive to minimize our sins and make them little small acts on an otherwise pretty good moral record, we assume that salvation belongs to us. If that is the case, then salvation is the result of human effort. If that is the way to salvation, then we control it. And at the core of human nature, that's what we really want. We want control. We want to be our own Lord. We want to be our own boss. And if salvation comes through our behavior, then it means we dictate our whole salvation process. And we've turned the gospel into something it's not by putting man in the driver's seat of their own salvation. I, uh, I met a man one time who probably understood the concept of lordship and what it really means to surrender. More than anybody I've ever met. And he never surrendered. Uh, I was called to his house because some of his friends, uh, some of my family actually, had been having some really deep spiritual conversations with him. His name was Robert. And they'd been having some really deep conversations with Robert. And Robert determined uh, that he was ready to ask Jesus Christ into his heart. So I drove over to his home. I sat down with him and talked to him about the gospel, explained some of these things to him. And and, and I began talking to him about lordship. He called me over there because he was ready to pray to ask Jesus into his life. So as I began to explain lordship to him, I told him that lordship is surrender. Lordship is giving up your rights and letting God having control of your life. It is acknowledging that you aren't in control anymore. He is. It's acknowledging just like I gave you the illustration of a stagecoach driver. Uh, lordship, salvation, is when you take the reins of your life and you slide over to the shotgun side of the stagecoach, and you give Jesus the reins of your life and say, I'm not the boss anymore. You are. I'm going to live by your decrees, by your maxims, because I understand if I do it my way, it's self-destructive. I give it to you. I surrender. I can't do this. And when I explained it to those terms in Robert, I, I naively uh, bowed my head and said, Come on, Robert, let's do this. That's what we came to do. Let's pray. And Robert said, Whoa, whoa wait a minute, Brian. He said, I didn't, I didn't understand all that part. He said, I'm not sure I'm willing to pray. So you're telling me to, to, to be a follower of Christ, what I really need to do is give up control. What I really need to do is surrender. I'm turning everything over to Jesus and, and, and I'm supposed to get in the Word and, and live by the precepts of His Word. What He asks dictates my life. I'm no longer in control. I said, absolutely. That's what it means to follow Christ. It is acknowledging your inability to do anything to improve your standing before God. And it's only in Him. And Robert said, I can't do that. I'm going to be in control. I'm not surrendering the control of my life to anybody, not even God. And you say, wow, I can't believe a man would do that. Listen, I believe because he was willing to do that, he probably understood it better than a whole lot of people who have surrendered their life and prayed the prayer in a moment of emotion when God was tugging on their hearts. What we need to understand, friend, is that there is nothing we can do to advance our standing before God. There is probably more of Robert in us than any of us would like to admit. Because at the core of human nature is the desire to control others and God and our circumstances, even our own salvation. At the very beginning, the human race has been vying for control. I mean, look at the tactics that the Satan used to tempt Adam and Eve. Every time God had made all these statements about Adam and Eve could enjoy this garden, they could do anything they wanted except eat of that one tree in the garden. And so when, and when Satan began to tempt Adam and Eve, he began to toy with human nature's desire for control. He asked Adam and Eve, uh, did God really say you couldn't eat of any tree in the garden? That's not what God said. Satan twisted it around. And then he said, you know what? God doesn't want you to eat of that tree because He knows if you eat of that tree, you're going to be like Him. You're going to know the difference between good and evil. What He insinuated in that statement was, God's got the upper hand on you. He knows more than you do. He controls you. And if you want to be like God, eat this fruit because then you're going to know the difference between good and evil. You're going to be like Him. He'll no longer have the upper hand in your life. That temptation came because Satan understood the desire of human nature to be in control from the very beginning. And since that moment, every sin that has been committed from thousands of years ago up until this moment, every sin that has ever been committed is at its core a rebellion against the Lordship of God in our life. It is a rebellion against God's control in our life. The original sin from the fall of man to every sin from then on is attack on His Lordship. It is a rebellion against His control. This desire to be in control and even control God is so steeped in our human nature that it often masquerades itself under the guise of our religious devotion. Go back to the Israelites we were talking about a moment ago. God rebuked them because they were performing religiously, but not out of genuine love for God. They were performing religiously to manipulate God into their situation. They were trying to control Him. God rebuked them. And He rebukes us this morning out of love when we go through the motions to gain control over Him. You see, we have this assumption. If I do everything right, if I live moral... If I go to church, if I give enough money, if I pray, all of these things are deposits into my God account. So that when I need God to forgive me for sin, or I need Him to get me out of a jam, or I need Him to heal my body, I can then go, it's my right to then go to the God account, and He is obligated to then let me make withdrawals out of His account because I have made all of these deposits into His account. He is obligated to respond because I've done all the things He's asked me to do. In that moment, our motivation is not doing the right thing as worship to Him. Our motivation is doing the right thing to gain control over Him. The only difference between us, they were doing it with bulls and goats, and we're doing it with our morality, our behavior, our church attendance. We do all the right things for all the wrong reasons. Instead of being moral, or giving, or praying to reflect His image to the world as an act of worship, we use our religious service to gain an upper hand over Him, just like Adam and Eve when they ate of the fruit. It's in our nature to want control. Listen. Anything I do that obligates God to anything puts me in the driver's seat. It eventually gives me a control. And deep in our hearts, that's what humanity really wants. We want control. So let me ask all of us a proving question Why do you serve Him? Do you serve God for you? Or do you serve Him for Him? Are we performing? To gain the upper hand and make deposits in our God account? Or are we truly surrendered as an act of worship? Are we serving God to get God? Or are we serving God to get control over God? Is our religious devotion manipulating Him? Or is it genuinely worship and surrender to Him? Because we understand you're my only hope. It is in you. My eternity and my tomorrow will only be fulfilled in you. There's an old story back in the days of kings and kingdoms, uh, one of those once upon a time stories that illustrate a legend that illustrates this really well. The legend says this Once upon a time, there was a gardener who grew an enormous carrot, and he took it to his king, and he said, My Lord, This is the greatest carrot I have ever grown or ever will grow. Therefore, I want to present it to you as a token of my love and respect for you as my king. The king was moved by the man's genuine offering. He discerned in his heart that this man was pure. He was authentic. And as the gardener turned to leave the king's court, the king said, wait, you're clearly a good steward of the earth. And I own a plot of land right beside your garden. And I want to give it to you. I want you to take it as a free gift. And I want you to garden the entire piece along with your own land. The gardener was amazed. He was delighted. He went home rejoicing. There was a nobleman who worked in the king's court. He was close enough to be in the room that day when the king said this to the gardener. And he got an idea. Wow. If that's what you get for a carrot, what might you get from the king if you bring him something even better? So the next day, the nobleman came before the king and he was leading this beautiful black stallion and he held it by the reins and he bowed his head and went to a knee with the reins of that stallion in his hand and he said, My Lord, I breed horses and this is the greatest horse I've ever bred or ever will. Therefore, I want to present... This to you as a token of my love and respect for you. But the king discerned his heart and said, thank you. And he dismissed the nobleman. The nobleman was perplexed. I mean, he really was taken aback. And as he turned to go with a visible frustration on his face, the king said, wait, let me explain. The gardener that you saw yesterday was giving me the carrot. But today, you were giving yourself the horse. The king was able to tell the motivation of why they did what they did. The man with the horse did the right thing for the wrong reason. What is our motivation? Why do we serve him? You see, Paul made reference in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse number 23, to the stumbling block of the cross. Listen to what he said. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. Why was the preaching of the cross a stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles? Well, in that day, whether you were Roman or Jew, it really didn't matter. Whatever culture you were from in that day, crucifixion was associated with humiliation. Imagine the difficulty Paul, Peter, the other apostles faced when they're trying to take the message of Christianity to other people who need this hope. And they're trying to tell them to believe in a Savior who died on a cross when crosses were associated with criminals. Crosses were associated with humiliation. And Paul said, I don't preach anything but the cross. And the cross is a stumbling block to the Jews. They have a hard time believing on a Savior who died like a criminal. It's foolishness to the Gentiles. The Romans, they all have a hard time believing in a Savior who died a death on a cross. It was repulsive to the Jews, foolish to the Gentiles. And maybe the cross to us today is not repulsive like it was then. I mean, we wear it as jewelry. It's on our necks. We frame it. I mean, we kind of idolize the cross in such a way that it is a part of our decor. So maybe the image or the issue of Jesus dying on a cross isn't a stumbling block in the same sense that it was to the Corinthians or to others of that day. But it is a stumbling block for us because the gospel is not calling you to be moral. In fact, your moral uprightness, if that's all you need to be saved, then it leaves you in control of your eternity, not God. And and people say, well, pastor, are you telling me that morality doesn't matter to God? No. I'm saying that your moral behavior, your religious service, your good works cannot save you. According to Paul, your only hope of salvation is in Christ. Christ became sin, the one that knew no sin. So that in Him, we might become the righteousness of God. And listen... He didn't just say, I'm going to cover your sin. That's what the blood of bulls and goats did in the Old Testament. They just covered sin. Jesus said, I want to take your sin-sick heart and then I'm going to give you my nature. I want to make you a brand new creation. I want to make you something so new that out of you is going to spring righteousness. It's just going to be natural for you to begin to do right and be right and think right. And as you grow to be more like me, your life is going to shift your priorities are going to change. Your desires are going to begin to change. Not because you're trying to earn my love, but because you already have it. And because it's living on the inside of you. You're not living right to manipulate me. You're living right because I made the unfair trade with you. I took the junk and gave you my righteousness. And because you are now my nature, you're going to express my image to the world. So morality is important. It's not the way to salvation. It is the result thereof of when we take on the nature of Jesus Christ but the reason the gospel is offensive is because you can't fix you I can't fix me the only thing we can do is just quit quit trying give up stop surrender and say okay God I get it I can't do this. This is not about just behavior modification and fixing all the things I do wrong. That'll come. It's about acknowledging I don't have any part in my salvation except the giving up, the surrendering. You see, one of the things that's offensive about the gospel is not just the original offense of telling you you can't do anything about your own salvation. It's the ongoing offense telling you that you continue to need the cross every day of your life. Think about your own spiritual trajectory. You know, I mean, I grew up... I grew up in a really strict environment, okay? My grandmother wore more to bed than most people wear to Walmart, okay? She, she had a holiness, a uh, nightgown, you know. It came to here. You didn't show skin, all right? And so I grew up in that environment. And, and I mean... We couldn't smoke, chew, or date girls who do. We couldn't do any of that. I couldn't go to the movie theaters when I grew up because my Lord, my, my my grandpa said if Jesus comes back and you're in the movies, uh, he's not coming in there to get you. You know, it's just I didn't know anything we were for, but I knew everything we were against. You understand? So I grew up thinking that God was mad at me and the reason I tried to act right was to appease this angry deity. I could never imagine that there was a God in heaven who took pleasure in me. I just couldn't fathom that. Because my image of God, because of my surroundings, was this mad deity who was just waiting on me to mess up so He could enact His judgment. And so I'm trying and trying and trying and trying and trying. And you know what? There were moments when I had these really good runs. I mean, I prayed every day. I read my Bible every day. I I I actually I I didn't in my thought, you know, because the issue then was on sins. It wasn't a sin in my heart. It was sins. And so I thought, man, if I can I got I minimize and, and and sin and I didn't gossip, didn't lie, and I went this spirit, you know, I went on this good season of being right. And then I blew it. And all of a sudden I felt like the God that was happy with me for 10 days didn't like me anymore. Until I understood the Gospel. Until I started understanding the the reality that I don't just need the cross to come into relationship with God. I need the cross every day because I can only go so long in my perfection until I go back and I need Him again. Ultimately, we all crumble with that one mistake. It happens that way. The same way we started our relationship, we have to keep coming back to this reality. Embrace the sacrifice of Jesus and His willingness to be our substitute. I want the team, if they will, to come back to the platform. You know, one author compared it this way. Said our human effort and our relationship to God is kind of like that childhood game. You remember when you had air a balloon blown up and in the living room, either by yourself or with your siblings, it was your goal to try to pat it as many times in the air before it ever hit the ground. And you'd literally wear yourself out, exhaustingly play putting forth your effort of chasing and diving and reaching to keep the balloon off the ground. But what if the balloon was filled with helium and it wanted to float on its own? And then your effort to try to keep it off the ground would probably restrict it from doing what it was going to do anyway. You would get in the way trying to fix it yourself. Our growth in Christ is more effective without our efforts of trying to clean it up. Trusting Him and letting Him do what He does and letting the nature that He implanted us begin to bear fruit in us. But that's hard when what you want is control understanding the gospel is understanding that he's removing the hope of your salvation from your hands and he's placing it in his hands as Paul said in our verse this morning it's in him the gospel is offensive because it attacks human nature at its core it tells you you can't do anything in salvation except give up so you asked this morning pastor what do I do? am I just supposed to sit here? I, what, what, what do I do? If, if I want to make that exchange what do I do? Give up. Quit trying to be your own savior. Quit trying to fix your own guilt by behavior modification. Invite him in. Acknowledge your inability to make the change and surrender. And then sit back and watch what God makes out of your life when you believe on Him. When you have faith in Him. That's why Paul said, and I'm using the words he used, I implore you today to be reconciled to God. I implore you. Because your eternity is not connected to how good you can be. Your eternity is connected to how much you can surrender to Him. And then He said in in that 21st verse, for our sake. Hang on to that. God made Him to be sin who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God for our sake aren't you tired of trying to keep the balloon off the floor is it the pressure of trying to create your own righteousness more than you can humanly bear we're pretending that we're close to being righteous and it's not fooling anybody not even us and the performance thing to try to manipulate God is crushing us under weight that God never intended for us to carry so what if for our sake he took it out of our hands and said it's not up to you it's up to him the futility of our own heart change may be the greatest gift of grace that God ever gave us in the gospel is that you don't have to do anything but realize you can do nothing and give up invite me in and let's make an unfair trade my righteousness for your sin and that's a deal that's kind of hard to refuse that's the gospel you know what, in just a moment, Haley and I are going to step into the back and greet our guest. But the most important thing that could happen this morning is applying this word to our heart. So I'm going to ask you, if you will, to stand with me right before we walk out of this room. And prayer team, would you make yourself available at the front of this building today? Every Sunday morning at the end of the message... I give an opportunity for this prayer team to come almost every Sunday for our regular attendees to uh, uh, to our guests, anybody that needs prayer for miracles. We still believe in miracles. We believe in in that God gives jobs to people who pray for them. We believe that God provides financially, works miracles in marriages. I mean, you can't believe in the gospel and not believe in the hope to pray for the miraculous, and and that's what these people are here to do. They're just going to wait um, for you, making themselves available. But let me say this. If you're with me this morning and you need to make the exchange, I'm not asking you to join my church. I'm asking you to make an exchange. If you've heard the gospel all of your life but never understood it like this and you're tired of trying to keep the balloon off the ground, realize He infused it with a helium called grace and it's not based on your effort. All you got to do is quit. Surrender. Trust Him. If you need to make that exchange today, these people know how to help you pray so that you can surrender. take the sinfulness out of your heart and give it to Him and let Him put His righteousness upon you or if you need prayer for anything else, they are here Haley and I'll be in the back, but this is the most important thing that will happen on this campus today, is applying the Word of God to your heart, I'm going to pray a blessing over the church, if you need to come to the altar for any reason this morning I want you to respond while I pray so you can beat the crowd on the way out of the door Father, will you bless them and keep them? Make your face shine upon them. Be gracious to them. Turn your countenance their direction and give them peace. In Jesus' name, amen. There are people already coming. The altars are open. God bless you.